1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we have our interview with Seth David of Nerd Enterprise. How's it going, Ron?
2: going great, Ed. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Seth. This is going to be fun.
1: Yes, yes, always a great conversation with Seth. But let me read him in so we can get started on the conversation. After working as an auditor for a number of years, Seth is relocated from New York to Los Angeles, where he worked for a publicly traded company and several CPA firms before and during his tenure as president and founder of Nerd Enterprises. Since that time, Seth has become one of the leaders in the accounting industry at the forefront with his use of technology in accounting. Most recently, he has leveraged his experiences as an auditor in creating the bulletproof bookkeeping and accounting process, welcome to the state, to, I say two issues of to to the soul of enterprise, Seth David.
3: Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here. It's an honor. I really um I really just appreciate it. I love hanging out with you guys. I've had you both on. You know every one of my podcasts that I've ever done. Not that there've been that many, but anyway, I love talking to you guys, so I'm really excited about this.
1: Well, you are a serial entrepreneur and a serial podcast creator, so I appreciate that. Ron, Ron and I are boring and stayed. Once when, when we stick with something, we don't want to change it up much. You know, just leave it where where it's at. Mm-hmm. But 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 Seth, you have a, a reputation for for being as your 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 company t- title, Nerd Enterprises, to for for being somebody who's at the forefront of technology. And you wrote a blog post that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, a couple of uh, months ago, actually. I think it goes back to March of this year. And, and I just thought the title was great. And I love your, your take on it because you did a video with, with it as well. Why is the Internet
3: browser experience due for an overall? It's <laughs> something that hasn't been updated properly, in my opinion, of course, in a really long time. If you think about it, there have been a lot of browsers over the years. Remember, the original browser was Netscape, right? That was the first browser. And if you read the hard thing about the hard things, you hear the whole story about how those guys built that browser. And they thought they had this great model. They had raised all kinds of VC money to to launch it. And they were going to charge like a low monthly subscription. And they're literally about to launch. And all of a sudden, a company that you might have heard of called Microsoft comes out and says, yeah, we're going to launch this browser called Internet Explorer. And it's going to be free. And that's how you're going to browse the web right? And it just crushed their model that they had millions of dollars writing on. And there was like, okay, we need to regroup and figure out what we're going to do next. And ultimately, very long story short, AOL was born out of that, I think, in some way, shape, or form. Anyway, so I, I just think if you think about how most browsers work, you know, they all have little different features. But by and large, it's the same layout, the same structure, right? And funny enough, Ed, more recent than that, I wrote an article called living on the edge and why i've now switched to microsoft edge even though in general not a big fan of microsoft products i'm much more of a google guy you know i use Mm -hmm. google work i use google sheets and google docs and all that but i love edge because i feel like edge now represents some of the changes i think we desperately need um you know most specifically i think the biggest how many times you see somebody's screen and you may be guilty of it yourself where they have so many tabs open across the top that you have no way of knowing what's in what tab. And I'm like I work with a lot of people over the years logged in one-on-one remotely with them and I'm like and I've watched them struggle because they don't know where the tab is that they're trying to click on to show me what what we're trying to go over, which is a productivity killer right and it drives me crazy it's one of those things where you know the the you know they say necessity is the mother of invention but i think where you can recognize when that's happening is when you find yourself saying there has to be a better way and that's i found myself saying that about the browser experience for a, for a while now in my
1: house, it's I, I'm a very clean browser experience guy. My wife is the one that has like you know millions of tabs open at any one time. So yeah. that, that's a constant struggle. But I, I will say this: that that one of the things that I do, and I I'm a Safari user, just because I I, I used something called Brave for a while mm-hmm. because it it was it was it was based on blockchain, and there was gonna there was always this this promise of of micropayments and experimented with that for a little bit nothing really came to fruition and hey maybe that's going to going to happen at some point where we get a, a better browser experience that also increases the security but i switched over mostly out of uh, out of uh, just, just because it was easier to integrate everything together cuz i use i products everywhere and safari mm-hmm. was just a better experience they did come out with tab groups though which I think even made my life a little bit better, because what you can do is group tabs together and put them on another side. But it's just another layer of the same interface. It's not anything wholly different. And right. I'm just wondering if you, th- if you think that what might change this is what Apple and uh, others, Oculus as well, Facebook, where, where the, the, what's the, the internet browser that we're going to when we have our goggles on? Might, maybe, mm-hmm. that's gonna, maybe that's going to be the new experience.
3: Yeah, well, I think when it gets to that point, you know, and it's all very minority report, you're just going to like think about whatever browser tab you need and it's going to come forward to you or you're going to like swipe that could be across scary. The... maybe I don't want that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you something about the browser tab. So, you know, Chrome has had that forever. But the problem is I can organize things in a in a in a tab group. As soon as I close Chrome, they're gone. Edge, by contrast, saves those. Okay, And also, if I expand those groups, they still have very limited space. What Edge gives me that made me switch, actually, was a vertical tab grouping as opposed Mm -hmm. to the horizontal one that every other browser has. With a vertical tab grouping, not only is it great that it can save it so I can close my browser, open it, and they're all right there again, but I have much more real estate to work with having the Mm -hmm. tabs on my left side instead of across the top.
1: Fair enough, and that that just might be this personal preference uh, and, and all that. I also do like the fact that on on uh, on Apple you can also, and I'm sure you can do this on Edge too. You can open the tab group on any of your devices, so they're all saved there, and you can move from one to the other.
3: Yeah, really you can. You have to be cool. logged in, of course. Yeah. With since it's Edge, you have to be logged into your Microsoft account, so but account. then everything right. syncs around. Yeah, right. This is a good bridge though, because Edge has also
1: incorporated the some some AI and ChatGPT 4.0 functionality into it as well. So curious as to, I guess, is that part of the experience too? That you're you're liking that experience with with uh, Chat Chappie, Chat ChatGPT 4o and
3: Edge? No, I don't like <laughs> I don't because I don't no. like Bing and I don't like their search. I actually I used it for a while because I, I I said I'm going to give it a fair shot if I'm using Edge, and so I started using their AI based kind of browser search. And honestly, I didn't feel like I got results as good as what I get when I use Google. So I actually switched my default search already just this week. In fact, to Google, um, and I played around with the Bing's, you know, version of Chat GPT, which I forget what it's called. Um, it's not Lambda. I I get confused now with all. Yeah, the yeah they've got these code names and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I so I played with it. I didn't. I didn't like it. I didn't feel like I got good answers. Um, I, I, I Chat GPT, you know, I've gone kind of in and out. Where there are days, and sometimes days on end, where I'm logged into Chat GPT every day. And I'm in it all day asking at things. And then sometimes I'll go for days without touching it because I'm just busy and I and the need doesn't arise, you know. And I I feel like I should be spending more time with it. But if we have time, I can explain. I've 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 literally just been putting together a very significant research project for myself where I'm gonna dive very deep into AI. And go way beyond chat GPT because there's so much more out there that we're not talking about enough, in my opinion. Like we're really, I think, selling ourselves short, just talking about chat GPT. Chat GPT, when you think about it, at its core, it can do one thing, which is write. It can write mm-hmm. stuff for me, right? Beyond that, not much you can do with Chat GPT by itself. I actually mostly use it inside of Notion because I live in Notion. That's where I keep notes and all kinds of information. My all my work um work management is done there. And a lot of times what I'll find myself doing in Notion AI is I'll be writing something in there and all of a sudden I'll like the other day I was reading something and I was making notes about what I was reading and the term cognitive dissonance came up. And I was like, you know, I know the term, but when have I really looked up what it means? So I, I actually just asked Notion AI to give me a definition. And the beautiful thing, because it's in Notion and I have a page where I've already written a bunch of stuff, there's more context around it. So it not only gave me a great answer, but it gave the reason it was so great was it gave me the context around what the rest of the subject matter of what was on that page had to do with. And it specifically referenced that. It said, you know, it gave me the sort of strict definition. And then it said, in the context of what you're writing about here, you know, this is what it means and you know so i use it a lot that way to make sure you know i, I i'm a writer i do a mm-hmm. lot of writing i've yet to come out with a book but i still like to do a lot of writing which means it's important to me when i am writing and i choose to use certain words that i really understand like one of my pet peeves is when i see somebody using a word or a phrase incorrectly it makes me crazy
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> so but but talk about that guy i want to explore that a little bit we've got about uh, three minutes left in this this segment about what what as, uh, people are not are missing about AI beyond ChatGPT. What, so what are some other things and how it's going to apply Let's c- specifically in the context of business?
3: So I'll give you a quick example of one of a bunch of articles I was looking at last night that was written about this new AI app that this company is producing that's going to scrape the web for just publicly available information. And it was in the context of e-commerce companies. Right? E-commerce is a big thing for me. I'm hell-bent on e-commerce. And so it gave the example of where this app, among other things, will be able to scrape the internet for merchants who want to see what are my competitors charging for the same product. That kind of data is the most valuable data accountants can learn how to get and provide to their clients so that we can make our clients more profitable. To me, this is just scratching the surface of how we should be going beyond Chat ChatGPT. ChatGPT can't do that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that that that's right out of something that I think the hotel industry and the airlines have been doing for years which is capturing the prices of all of their competitors and the what they what they're looking to do of course is is for the competitors to sell out so that they can raise their rates on a particular
3: at a particular hotel or a particular route. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Mm -hmm. And here's a thought. How about using AI? Speaking of the hotel industry, I heard of a use case of this years ago, but I never saw it sort of come to market. But this guy who was working at an AI kind of company before we talked about AI like we do now, um, they were developing technology that would be scraping the web, looking for reviews to collect data to provide to hotels as in, What were customers complaining about? Like maybe they didn't like the pillows at this one particular hotel. It was designed to be able to look for consistent feedback that these hotels could use to figure out where to improve. And it could be a dumb little thing like, hey, nobody likes our pillow, you know. Stuff like that, I think, is more important than what we're really hearing mostly about in terms of how to use chat GPT in the accounting world.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I think HubSpot stuff is, is doing is, is trying to capture sentiment. You know, what, what is the sentiment about your particular company as compared to other companies as well? And I think that's, that, that, that's a, it's a good example. The question is, of course, with all of this, Seth, is, is it going to change behavior, right? Are, are, are people going to go, okay, now that we have this wonderful data, is it going to make a difference for organizations.
3: I think it will. I mean, just using the example I gave for the e-commerce merchants, you know, another article I was looking at last night, Shopify is developing AI tech for the merchant side where the merchants can use a chat GPT like interface, but which has access to the live internet to source information that will be really useful to collect data that will be really useful to them. I think they're going to be the people who choose to use it. And then they're going to be the people who avoid it for whatever reason. And those people who avoid it are either going to be forced to use it or they're going to, in some way, shape or form, just get left behind. So I think one way or another, it will you'll either voluntarily change your behavior or you'll be forced to or you'll be forced out one of those three. (laughs) Uh, all right. <laughs> the,
1: the, 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 the whole quote about uh, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less, right? From General <laughs> Eric Jackie. Well, yeah. uh, this has been great, Seth. Want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We also have a Patreon channel available, patreon.com slash tsoe. We can listen to the show commercial free, and our bonus episodes. At a certain level, you can get a shout out like Blake Oliver at Earmark CPE did. Check him out at earmarkcpe.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors.
4: Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: You are tuned into the Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now back to the Soul of Enterprise.
2: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Seth David from Nerd Enterprises. Seth, you're one of Doug Sleater's favorite people, and you're a mentor to Hector Garcia, so that's righteous and respectable company. So thrilled to have you on. Um, I wanted to know, I, I don't think I've ever heard your backstory. How'd you get into this? How'd you get but into it
3: Speaking of Doug Sleater, uh, when he was doing his... Um... now I can't even remember. The Skeeter Slater, Um I was just looking at the other day and then the name escapes me, but he was doing his kind of like show. Right. And the episode I did with him for that was uh, it was Mr. Skeeter's Neighborhood, something like that. Um, I he dug deep with me and I went really, really far into it. So the first question I have for you before I answer your question is like how like specifically how I got into accounting or like bigger than that.
2: <laughs> well, anywhere you want to go, but I mean, how, I mean, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a CPA at fifteen. So I see. Okay. Wh- when did your When did your journey begin?
3: But much later than that. I, you know, when I was in, in fact, when I, when I was in high school, like anybody who went to high school with me and who knows me from then, probably would never in a million years have guessed I would become an accountant, including myself. Not something I was. If anything you know somebody that you would and still think of as more of a creative type and i think that has now really translated even into how i've evolved as an accountant i've definitely clung to the more creative side of things but along the way and and you know short story long <laughs> i i i was in school originally after high school as a computer science major and but i wasn't like interested in academics and studying then certainly not the way i am now um, and so I wasn't really getting the grades. It's not the kind of work you can just skate by on without studying right. and really preparing. So uh, quickly, I decided I didn't want to waste my father's money and my time. And so I, I left school uh, you know, before, I, before like two years even. And it was like, OK, what do I do next? And the funny thing is I wanted to pursue an acting career, but my dad made it clear there was no way he was going to support that. So I remember I start looking at articles for jobs I can find to save up some money so I could go to California and go become an actor, right? Um, and I, along the way, I run into these ads that talk about making like $10,000 a month as a stockbroker trainee. And I'm like, that's perfect. I'll go. I'll make a big bag of money. I'm going to buy a Jeep and a giant bag of weed and smoke my way across the country. And, and then I'll pursue my acting career, right? and it was funny so then i just get into working as a stockbroker somehow i'm not quite 21 and i'm doing this and i'm starting to make money and i'm starting to get excited about that you know it wasn't really who i thought i was but uh you know then the time came to go back to school i was convinced by my parents and at the time i was dating a girl whose brother had to talk with me about it cuz he was concerned if i was going to end up marrying his sister which didn't end up happening but they were all kind of like look Go back to school, get your degree. You can always fall back on something that way. In the meantime, then you can jump back into pursuing, you know, go back to be a stockbroker or whatever you want to do. So I went back to school. I went to SUNY Farmingdale. You know, a couple semesters, got practically straight A's. Went to Pace University and got my degree in accounting. By which time, I said, I put in time and effort in this. I should give this field a shot, and uh, and so I did. You know, that's the very short version of how i got into accounting so i did that you know after pace i worked for a company called united government services who did audits for like medicare and medicaid cost reports and and then i eventually um landed in rehab <laughs> which took me to california on a whole different basis to go to rehab and uh and then i decided to stay out here in california i was worried if i went back to uh New York, I would fall back into the old habits and the old friends. And, you know, even though everybody who's been in recovery knows you can't just do a geographic, there has to be recovery along with that. I certainly felt I had a better shot, you know, starting a whole new life here with all new people.
2: I mean, not to not to dive in, you don't have to answer this, but I'm just curious. Did, Open book. Did, did that start when you were a stockbroker? Was was it just the culture of the work or your it escalated? Colleagues? It, escalated. It,
3: it started. I mean, I was I started smoking pot when I was in high school and drinking like a lot of kids do and did, you know, probably when I was about 15 years old. Um, See, at 15, you wanted to be a CPA. I wanted to do drugs. (laughs) Right. Um, But so it started there, but definitely working as a stockbroker, it escalated. In fact, I remember one night I'm working for this guy who, again, at the time I was about 21, he was like 26 years old, making a million dollars a year or more. And uh, we went out one night and it was like, I didn't even have a choice because originally I remember saying, I, I've i got a long commute. You know, I lived on Long Island. We we're working in New York City right off of Wall Street. And he's like, no, you don't have a choice. You're coming out with us and you also will be back to work on time tomorrow. And long story short, that night, he kind of literally said this to me, like exact words, practically. You know, this is we learn how to work hard and play hard here, which means we're going to go out and we're going to party in the off hours. But we're still going to show up on time and we're going to get the work done. We're going to make the sales. And that's the lifestyle. That's the life. If you want this, this is what we do. And so guess what helped with that? You know, I remember one day we came in after a night of partying and all of us, of course, except for him, were there on time. <laughs> uh, and this one guy turns around and he's like, anybody want a little bump? And he was referring to cocaine. And we we're all so dead tired. Nobody had the energy to pick up the phone. So I said, sure. And I did a little bump and I get on the phone and like first call, I open up an account, $30,000 trade, boom, I'm making money. And now I'm like, holy crap, this stuff works, you know? And so it definitely escalated when I was working on Wall Street, Um, you know, and I suffered a lot of the same delusions that a lot of people who end up with a serious drug problem suffer from, especially in the beginning that, you know, we think, oh, I'm not going to get into trouble. I'll know when to stop. But in the meantime, this can be really fun and, and really helpful.
2: Wow, you remind me, Seth. Uh, do you know Larry Kudlow?
3: I, I'm not his, sure, honestly.
2: He's he used to work in the Reagan White House, and he worked on Wall Street, and he got involved in Coke, and religion was his path out of it. Hmm. Um, and it, it, he, he's very open about this on his radio program and in his writings. But what was your what was your path out of it? Devastation.
3: I mean, I mean, ultimately, I was it was like I, I i realized if i didn't get help a my father finally got himself educated he went to um what were called naranon meetings a lot of people know al anon it's like the sister program to aa right. that family members go to to learn how to deal with their alcoholic family member naranon is the equivalent sister program to narcotics anonymous and yeah. so my father got educated about you know tough love and long story short he told he tells me one day cuz i relapsed again and he's like, look, you're not going to get any more help from me if you don't go to rehab. I had actually signed something with him. We had it in writing that if I really again, I was going to go to California and go to rehab. And I was like, I'm not going. I signed that agreement under duress <laughs> and uh, I'm not going. And then he said, that's when he said, I'm, you know, that's fine. I can't make you go, even though we had an agreement, but I'm not going to help you with, with your finances anymore because he bailed me out all the time. It was a classic sure. enablement scenario. And so realizing what that meant after I hung up the phone with him from that call, um, it was almost like the, the tape played for me where I was going. I was months behind on my rent. I was about to lose a government job, which you have to try to lose, you know, as an auditor. Um, and I almost succeeded at that. And so I thought about it and called my father right back and said, okay, you know, I'll do this, but if we're going to do this, we need to do it now before I lose my nerve. And next thing I know, I'm, going up to my apartment, packing my stuff to go back to my parents' house on Long Island and wait until they could get a room for me. By that time, he had already done the research and uh, found the rehab that I was going to go to in California. So so ultimately, my path um, out of it was definitely a spiritual program. It was the 12-step recovery programs. Um, so it was definitely a spiritual process, just not necessarily religious per se. You know. Sure. Sure. And, and still today, I I have a meeting that I've started that I sort of run every single week on zoom. After the pandemic, we went to zoom and I never, before the pandemic, I mean, or during we went to zoom and I never changed it back to in person because I now have people who log in from all over the place. Like i get a bunch of people from Las Vegas who love the meeting. And I'm like, if I go back to in person, they will lose their, you know, opportunity to join us. So.
2: Wow. Oh, that's great. Um, Well, you know the other thing that I've noticed about you is and I think uh, the three of us share this this uh, common bond you you seem to give away your intellectual capital and I don't just mean your knowledge but connect i mean intellectual capital is much broader than knowledge it's your social network your ca- you know connections and all that type of thing you seem to give it away and I do that and ed does that because we think it forces us to replenish it and that's kind of what keeps you on the bleeding edge. Is is that kind of your philosophy?
3: You know, it's funny. It really comes from the twelve step process and what I learned there. You know, in the twelfth step, what we're taught is that we. Well, let me illustrate this better by actually sharing a, an experience. So, um, years into my recovery, like probably between seven and nine years, uh, I, I went to reach out to a new sponsor. It was like, I felt sort of out of touch with the process. I mean, I would go to meetings, but I really wasn't engaged in the actual work that much anymore. It had been years. Um, and I was actually trying to sponsor a guy, taking him through the work. We got to about the third step. And I honestly felt like, even though I had a lot of knowledge of what was in our books, I felt like I didn't know how to sponsor this guy. And I, I'm, here I am, I'm like, I've got this guy's life in my hands in some respects, not to be dramatic, but there's a lot of truth to that. True. And I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm going to hurt this guy. So I reached out and I found a new sponsor and he said, all right, we're going to do this, but I'm going to take you through the process as though you were a newcomer. Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to set aside everything you think you know about recovery, God, whatever it is? And I said, absolutely. I've been here long enough by now to understand the importance of taking direction. I'm going to put my confidence in you. And, and so we started doing that work and about seven or eight months in, I was invited by somebody to... Uh, Do some service work at the. uh, I I mostly ended up in the fellowship of Cocaine Anonymous because that was my primary drug of choice. And I was invited to do some work at the world service level. And uh, so I went to him, I said, What do you think? And he said, Here's the thing. He said, I know how busy you are. By then, I was already running Nerd Enterprises. You know, like I said, I was a number of years clean. And He said, I I know you get very busy and I'm not going to tell you one way or the other what to do. He says, but I just really hope that you will reserve time in your schedule for taking others through the work. And I thought about it and I understood why he was telling me that. And I'll explain in a minute. But that led me to go back to the other person who invited me. I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to respectfully decline your request as honored as I am that you've asked. And the moral of that story was that the importance of staying clean or staying sober is based on giving it away. It's based on taking what I've learned about what it took. You know, there were in the early days of AA, there were about 100 men and women who collectively kind of figured out, starting with Bill Wilson, what it took to get and then stay sober. And that's what they wrote about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the book we use in Cocaine Anonymous. And so my job, as I learned it through that experience, is to find as many people as possible after he took me through the work. And what he did that no sponsor before had done was he taught me how to teach it. And in that he taught me and in that experience I described, he taught me how important it is if I want to stay clean, that I have to help others get clean. And so when the time came that I started really looking at Nerd Enterprises and how I wanted to market the company, and I actually hired an internet marketing consultant, and without knowing anything about recovery or me being in recovery, he described the exact same scenario that he said, look, here's the process. You produce content. You put it out there online. You take your knowledge and you teach it to people. You give it away for free, and that will attract a lot of people. And then among them, there will be a small percentage of people who will want to pay for more of your help. And so that's exactly where I got this philosophy from. And I got so fired up because I was like, this can't be a coincidence that I meet this guy who tells me that the way I need to build my business is on the exact same basis as how I learned to stay clean. Is,
2: did did it sound counterintuitive at the time from a business sense? Seth? Yeah,
3: because I felt like who's going to want to pay me for anything if I'm giving it all away. But as I know, you've all learned just like I did. You know, that's it's not true. It doesn't work that way.
2: Right right now it comes back and it's incredible well wow that what a great story thanks for sharing that folks i'd like to remind you if you want to contact ed or me send us an email to ask tsoe verisage.com ed mentioned our patreon channel uh, that you can uh, subscribe to and get our bonus shows and of course that channel is sponsored by 90 minds more minds meld at 90 minds and you can check out their work at 90 minds.com and now a word from our sponsors
4: Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you.
1: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. And we are back on the Soul of Enterprise with Seth, Seth David, who is, as I actually knew this previously, but I'm just going to bring it up again, a fellow Pace alumni. Go Setters. P- That's right. That's right. <laughs> I actually forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I th- you're a New York City campus, though, I'm sure, right? No, it's Pleasantville. Oh, you were at too? I, I was uh, College of White Plains, so I wasn't on. I took one class in Pleasantville. So okay. um, just did a, a visit with my son two weeks ago up to the Pleasantville campus. So there you go nice. Yeah. Uh, so Seth, I wanted to get back into the, the accounting side of things and and you've had a transition recently that I'd like you to take us through. And that is you bifurcated your business. Talk a little bit about that.
3: I did. So I, years ago, um, I ended up hiring somebody who was actually a personal friend to come and work for me. I was talking to her one night and she was here in California, you know, essentially trying, you know, the, the cliche of trying to get an acting career going. And she was working little odd jobs at you know, bartending and doing other things that a lot of people in the acting or, you know, when they want to be acting will do. And at the same time, I needed some help. I needed like an assistant of some kind to help me. I was doing too much of the administrative stuff. So after talking for a bit, I said, look, why don't we get on a Zoom? This was believe it or not, Zoom was already around by by this time. But long before, you know, the pandemic when everybody started using it. So I said, why don't we get on a, a, a video call and and I'll share my screen, kind of walk you through what I need help with. And then you can tell me honestly, if it's something that you feel like you can do or want to do, great. If not, then no, no harm, no foul. And so we did and I walked her through it and she said, yeah, no problem, I can do this. And it was probably, at least in my opinion, it was a better way for her to make, you know, that side hustle money while she was trying to get her acting career going. But as it evolved, you know, she ended up starting to help with some of the bookkeeping. And before I knew it, you know, she was doing bookkeeping for clients rather than you know being an administrative assistant for me, um, and it worked out well. And I taught her a lot over the years. And fast forward almost ten years later to this year, um, I just I reached a point where I, for years now, have wanted to really focus solely on the educational platform side of my business, and, you know, but the thing is, I was you know for a long time still very dependent on the accounting services revenue. Um, But I realized over the last few years that I really wasn't as dependent on that anymore. And so I started getting more and more anxious because I felt like now it's holding me back because I can't spend the time I really want to, to produce the content that I want to produce and the courses because I'm held back every time one of these clients needs something. Now, granted, Erica handled most of the work, but every once in a while, and it would come up probably once a week, just with a different client, something would come up, some form of lack of planning on their part, and it would disrupt me. and you know, throw me off my groove, so to speak. So I got tired of it. And finally, one day, as I was sort of complaining to Erica about it, she was like, you know, she kind of threw it out there. I I don't know if she was like half serious or what, but she's like, if you want to sell the clients to me, you know, we can talk about that. And then we try, I tried one more time, took on a new client. It was actually after I spoke with you, Ron, about the subscription model. And it was, so it was the end of last year and going into January, I got this referral, great client, perfect example of somebody to do the subscription model with. Right. Um, And so I charged them a a very high fee, you know, ended up being like $7,500 a month subscription basis and just all in, we're going to do everything. We're going to do the bookkeeping. We're going to, you know, I'm going to dig in. It was a, a production company, which is obviously common here in Los Angeles. And, They had a lot of finance leases that I really wanted to dig in, clean up the accounting and then go through those finance leases back into the interest rates that they were paying, which I knew were exorbitant, and then put a plan together to consolidate all that and save them a ton of money. Like I really felt like I could bring a ton of value. The whole thing went sideways very quickly. Their VP of finance was very resistant. He was recording it the wrong way. And It it went very quickly downhill, and after that, I was kind of like, "That's it, I'm done. I don't, I just don't want to do this anymore. I can't stand working with these clients." And so, after that experience was done, when I parted company with them, I went back to Erica and I said, "I want to talk to you about that thing you suggested." And and then we ended up just working out a deal. You know, we looked at the revenues from the clients that she worked on for me, and came up with an arrangement. She got a lawyer, I got a lawyer, we got the whole thing written up, and actually went very smooth you know for the most part a couple of bumps near the end just little term details that didn't end up mattering but uh so as of july of this year i was out i was done so sometimes things said in jest right you never know what that what what that
1: can lead to i wanted to ask you about this because this is a conversation that i'm having often with a lot of the 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 folks that i work with and uh, one question that i will ask at, at conferences especially for people who are doing cas work what does your A stand for? And they That's they funny. always kind of go, uh, uh, uh well, because it's to me, it's either accounting or it's advisory, mm-hmm. and the two are not the same. Like you can you, and the way that that uh, our friend Tim Williams talks about it, he's like it's McDonald's or Ruth Chris. Wh- which do you want to be? I mean, if you're going to run McDonald's, you can do client accounting services. If you want to run Ruth Chris and be client advisory services, you got to stop doing just pure accounting for people. What are your thoughts on that?
3: So let me let me go sideways on you with that one, first Mm -hmm. of all, because I freaking hate that term. I just despise it. I hate people use it. I I almost want to say I hate the people that use it, but I'll, I'll retract that statement. Right. I just despise it. I feel like it's one of those terms that people use to make themselves sound smart and sophisticated, even though you know damn well that a lot of people reading it when you write it or whatever, um, you know, don't know what that means. And that's a big pet peeve of mine is when people use an acronym in their written word without defining what that is. If you make me Google something to understand what you're saying, you have failed at communications 101. That's my opinion. Okay, so. With that being said, I, I guess the first time I heard about it and then Googled it to understand what it stood for, I thought it stood for client accounting services. Either way, I will never, you'll never see me use that term, that hashtag. It's, it's freaking accounting services or it's advisory services. Of course, it's for a client. Do I really need to clarify that? You know, <laughs> so anyway, that's my two cents or 10 cents worth. Even my dogs are excited now. Uh, well,
1: on this, but on the sideways, do you, but do you think that, that, that there is a, a significant challenge in running either an accounting services business or an advisory service business? And those are oftentimes really two different things.
3: Yeah, the accounting services, <clears throat> I think of as compliance, right? And, you know, I, I I'll say this, I think of something I learned long before I even became, well, no, it wasn't before I became an accountant, but early in my experience working as an accountant, I worked with a guy who, for a period of time, I went to work for him full-time as his CFO. And during that time, he took me to this conference. It was called Mega Marketing Magic, and it was put on by Mark Victor Hansen. And um, it wasn't Robert Allen, even though he's co-authored a lot of stuff with Mark. There was this other guy, Alex Mandosian, who I think was the sort of other co-host of this conference. Anyway, at that conference, what I remember learning is something that I've also relearned many times from the two of you gentlemen, which is how... They talked about passive streams of income and multiple streams of income. And so when I think about you know accounting services and, and how compliance based that is, to me, my immediate thought is you will never scale because you will keep having to trade your time for money in that model. Even if you do a value based pricing system, even if you go to a subscription model, you still have to show up to earn that money at some point. The closest you can come to scaling is hire people to do the work for you but you still have to make sure that you manage them well and provide the resources they need. And ultimately, at some point, you got to work with the clients, right? So you're still trading your time for money in some amount. Whereas, you know, the reason I so love the educational side of my business is because it's the opposite of that. And I feel like advisory represents the same thing. So not every accountant's going to want to go make courses like I do. But at least if you go to the advisory side, that's where you can scale because you won't be trading your time for money. You'll set up a subscription with somebody. You'll have it clearly defined what you're doing for them and you'll go do it and you'll just produce. And it doesn't matter how much time it takes. In fact, you'll get better and better at your job, get it done in less and less time because you'll create systems that get you, that help you get the work done more efficiently, but at the same time, more effectively, which means without sacrificing quality. Because I think sometimes we think of efficient as taking shortcuts and then losing quality. So I always like to qualify that. But um, I think that's the difference really between the advisory side versus the accounting services side. Is accounting services, you will forever be trading your time for money. Granted, somebody needs to do it. Some people enjoy doing it, but um, I hated it. (laughs)
1: Well, in some way, you've got to do the. Uh, in some cases, you've got to do the accounting to do the advisory. In many yes. cases, right? So it, it's it's what again Tim Williams talks about: magic work versus logic work. You've got to do the logic work in order to get to the magic work. Yeah. Right? yeah, but it's still but it's still a different business model, and I think that's where we we come down on is that it's it's definitely fewer customers or fewer members, whatever you want to call them. It's not going to be as as scalable, but it should be at a significantly higher price. I mean, at least that that's how I look at it.
3: Yeah, no, 100% agreed. Uh, you know, So either what that's going to look like is either you have a client who has their own bookkeeper who does all the compliance work so that you can just do the advisory or you offer a much bigger package in which you do it all for them and you hire the person to, you know, to do the the compliance stuff so you can do the advisory. All right, well, this is great, Seth. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home. want to
1: remind our listeners that they can contact either one of us by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, show notes, previews to upcoming shows. Please go out to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE where you can guess what? Rate this podcast. we love for you to do that because that helps others find the show, write a review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage.
4: birdie told me voice america is on twitter follow us at voice america trn
1: sage provides accountants with compliance reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients
4: Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the diamond water paradox. Go to Patreon.com/tsoe and subscribe today, please. For the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one
2: talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome
2: back, everybody. We're here with Seth David from Nerd Enterprises. And Seth couldn't agree more with what you said about CAS. These acronyms that some of these firms throw around, like, like SMEs, or mm-hmm. we service the mid middle market. There's no, there's not customer alive that knows whether or not they're in the middle market because they just don't describe themselves that way. Yeah. I don't know why we as a profession do this, but that's a separate soapbox. Um, I wanted to ask you, Doug leader asked me to ask you this and I thought it was a good question because I've heard Doug say this multiple times, multiple places. Um, agility trumps ability mm-hmm. <laughs> and you and him did a series of courses, I understand, on this. So can you talk about that? That brings up a lot of extremely
3: fond memories. First of all, I want to say I, I love Doug Slater. He I really have thought of him as my mentor, you know, in every possible way in this industry. You know, he reached out to me at a time when I was basically just sitting in my garage serving a, local accounting clients, right? Local CAS clients. No, I'm just kidding. Um <laughs> And he reached out to me one day, I feel like he just plucked me out of my garage and put me into this world and started introducing me to people from Intuit. And it turns out people had seen my videos that I did, I had no idea anybody had taken note, I was just, I thought I was just being a schmuck putting videos up and being a little sarcastic tongue in cheek about, you know, how boring accounting can be, but I was trying to make it a little exciting. And yeah, so I remember when he and I would do, we did a lot of, um, we just recorded a lot of videos. Many of them never made it, you know, to anywhere other than like us reviewing them. But I remember he and I would do our, like we would do it on Google Meet at the time. You know, I was doing a weekly Friday call for years and and we would often talk about that topic of agility trumps ability, right? And I mean, the phrase itself should paint a pretty clear image. In other words, I don't have to be, the most skilled person on the planet. Of course, I've got to have the skills, but in other words, if I have to choose, right? And this is where we get into uh, maybe even an argument, if you will, about you know what I'm going to say here. So the the question is, do I go all in on like a skill or a small set of skills and just get really good at that? Like we talk about picking a niche, right? And there's definitely benefits and advantages to that. And it's probably fair to say that you know in the beginning of your accounting career, you you can't do that because you, you need to get the experience that's going to inform you about what you want to specialize in. But what I say there then is that then your niche in the beginning is those small micro businesses who can't afford the rates that somebody like me would charge, right? And who need somebody to help them with their accounting and and you need the work to get the experience. So you're going to fly under the radar with the rates you're going to charge in order to get the experience. And so that's that's how I match up those people with their you know best niche in my experience. So there's there's that level of thinking going really deep on one thing but then there's agility and what Doug and I were really referring to when we talked about this is you know the ability to be agile with respect to let's say tools We talk about all these different apps and I, for years and still now I talk to so many accountants and bookkeepers who, you know, they struggle with it still like, oh my God, there's so many apps out there. How do I choose what app to use for this thing or that thing? And a lot of times what I, what I settled in on for a lot of this, first of all, the agility refers to your ability to have a bunch of these tools in your toolbox. And when you understand how they work and what they do well and what they don't do well, and the fact that there's going to be a fair amount of overlap between them, so a lot of people will say, oh, when I started using Airtable, people were like, are you going to replace Smartsheet? I'm like, I don't know, not necessarily. You know, And even today, there are things that Airtable does really well that Smartsheet may do a little better and vice versa. Um, so the answer is the, the agility that, that he and I would talk about refers to the fact that you want to have this, these, this set of tools in your toolbox so that when, when a client comes to me and says, here's my problem, here's what I'm trying to solve. I can think about the tools I have in my toolbox and I can say, you know, I've got these three tools, either any one of them might do the job, but this one's going to do it really well because of these little features that I'm aware of that it does. It's going to just make it much better. That's, I, that's, what, that's what it means to me when Doug and I would talk about agility trumping ability that if, if you're agile, if you're able to move around and not get overwhelmed and not be in fear about having to learn the apps, but rather embrace it, take it in, welcome it. Um, I was doing a meditation recently that was called a lakes meditation. And she talks about how when you drop a rock into a lake, the lake receives that rock. It takes it in. Right. It doesn't resist it. It doesn't spit it out. It can't. Right. And that we want to kind of learn to be like that. To me, that's what agility looks like is I I learned to take all this in so I can make, frankly, better decisions about what tools to use. When when the when I have and like I say the way to sum it up all succinctly is you know it's the right tool for the right job, right? And so I I don't want to be so focused on just one tool that I end up trying to figure out how to use a standard screwdriver when sometimes I'm going to run into a Phillips head screw.
2: Right, right. No, that makes complete sense. That's great. Um, you, you know, speaking of tools and speaking of AI, I know you're doing a deep dive on a project on AI. You mentioned that before we went live. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Every, everybody's talking about chat GPT and we've seen this with other technology set, the cloud, all these apps that you were talking about. Um, and, and the, the, the notion's been sold to, to accounting firms. You take all this technology, it saves you a ton of time on your repeatable, predictable tasks. And you take that freed up time and you move up the value curve and you go to the advisory services mm-hmm. and, I don't think we've done that. I think no. we've taken all that free time and went out and got more of those repeatable, predictable tasks. <laughs> I just see this as a, a constant circle. And I'm not sure AI or ChatGPT or any other thing, blockchain, I don't think it's going to change that. What's your take?
3: I looked at an app this week. I'm going to hold back on mentioning any names because I need to do more research before I can tout it. But with what I saw, and I was talking to a guy from the company. And this is a company that is being built, not by anybody we know from the accounting industry, but by guys who come from big data. And another guy on their board, I was doing research um, on them. On I was just kind of looking at their LinkedIn profiles to see what, what the backgrounds are of the people who are building this company. And so they have two guys who are from big data companies and another one who is a VC guy, clearly. So they, my guess is they're well-funded and people who are coming from big data, they know how to develop. And, you know, one of the problems I see in our world, in the small business accounting world, let's just call it, is with a lot of these app developers that come out with apps, you know, the term they use is MVP, the minimum viable product. So they roll out the bare minimum. Exactly, Ed. They roll out the bare minimum viable product, which means your customers or clients are your beta testers, right? And it frustrates people. I don't think these guys are doing that. I think they are not going to roll out something that isn't very well tested. And one of the things that it's very clear this thing will do with its AI piece is it will analyze your bank feeds and how you code things, and it will code your bank feeds for you. Obviously, you'll be given the opportunity to intervene and adjust as needed. But this, to me, is where the AI will actually change the way we work um, it's not there yet. And like I said earlier, ChatGPT can't do it. All ChatGPT can do. The closest I can come is I can I can feed ChatGPT a list of like pays, and it'll give me suggestions for accounts. I can even give it my chart of accounts so it can be more specific about which of my accounts to use, you know. And so so there are very, very, I think, limiting use cases so far for this in terms of how it will or will not yet change our work. But when I looked at this product and I saw what they were doing, and by the way, most beautiful interface I've ever seen in, in an mm-hmm. accounting related reporting app. It is, I'll tell you this much, it pulls data out of QuickBooks Online and sources data beautifully, better than a pivot table even, where I can really drill around and drill in and I can I can, I can can run a report that shows sales on a little bar chart and I can click on that month and it'll show me all the customers in a beautiful graphic interface. I'll tell you guys all offline what I'm talking about. I just don't want to mention it in a live podcast until I do more research. But bottom line, I think eventually companies like this will will change the game and and they'll kill it. In fact, having seen what I saw them do, I would almost want to go back to any developers who are thinking about working on technology that's going to help people clear up uncategorized expenses and say, don't bother, because these guys are going to crush it. And they're probably better funded than you. And they're they're better at developing than you because of the big data backgrounds that they come from.
2: Wow. That's awesome. Um, I know we've only got a couple minutes here, Seth, but, uh, you've been to Israel probably more than once. Is that right? Many times. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think?
3: I was actually bar mitzvah there. Um, you know, so when I was 13, uh, that was my first time going there. I was back again at 16 on a teen tour. Um, I didn't mention this earlier, but I grew up in a very Jewish home. We were talking about like the religious, you know, aspect of how your friend, you know, got clean. Um, And then many years ago and up until the pandemic started every year for Passover, my father would kind of gather our family up and we would all attend this program in northern Israel. It's a little town called Zikron Yaakov and really cool town, like very like hippie-esque kind of town. Um, about 30 minutes south of Haifa. You can Google a map of Israel to get the references I'm talking about. And it was like this big B&B that um, this woman who runs the program would take over. And you have Jewish people from all over the world coming to celebrate Passover together. Coolest, coolest thing I've ever experienced. And going to your question specifically, what is that like? What does it feel like? You're in awe when you're standing there and you're thinking about how much history is there and the significance of that place. Even as I'm speaking about it, I get chills. You know, you there are people who, when they land in Israel, it's a tradition to walk off the plane and literally kiss the ground, you know, to, to acknowledge wow. the holiness of the place, you know, and the significance of the place that you're, you're now in, you know, but it's like, there's a presence there. I've told my wife, if, um, if I was ever going to move to another country, to live for the rest of my life. That's where I'd. That's again. where
2: you go. We, we our favorite podcast is Russ Roberts, and he just moved there. Uh, he's president of Shalom College. But anyway, Seth, thanks so much. It's been a great honor to be able to chat with you, Ed. Likewise. What do we have next week, Ron? Next week we are going to interview Chat
1: G Peter D. I'll just leave it there.
2: Chat. Well, I'll see you in 157 hours.
1: This has been The Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific, with our conversation with Chat G. Peter D. In the meantime, feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.